Okay, and welcome to the third installment of the first lecture in Law 505. Today we're going to tackle Chapter 5 in the Public Law book and some issues around the Constitution of Canada at a very high level. We are not going to cover everything within this chapter at this point. We're going to come back to the issues of constitutional conventions, unwritten principles of the Constitution, and constitutional amendment. So suffice to say, for the purposes of this class, the primary thing that we must be concerned about when considering the Constitution is the written text of the Constitution. And the Constitution of Canada isn't a single document. In fact, there are a number of statues that have been incorporated as part of Canada's constitution, but there are primarily two documents that we must concern ourselves with. The first is the Constitution Act of 1867, which I'd mentioned earlier, and this is an act of the Imperial Parliament in Great Britain, which created the structures of the Canadian government. The second principal document is the Constitution Act 1982, and this did two things that are going to take up much of our focus in this course. The first is to set out the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which sets out certain fundamental rights that are guaranteed to everyone in Canada. And the second is to constitutionally recognize and affirm Aboriginal and treaty rights in Canada, which we will delve into at the end of the course. So. The primary place to find constitutional law is within the text of the Constitution itself as interpreted in judicial decisions. Necessarily, the text of the Constitution doesn't specifically address many of the questions that arise in its application. That is left to the judges, and a body of constitutional jurisprudence has built up starting shortly after Confederation and continuing with important developments that, can, that happen to this day. We will get deeper into the effect of a state action or legislation being inconsistent with the Constitution as we go through this course. But at this point, what is important to think about is the Constitution is the supreme law of Canada. It's at the top of the hierarchy. You can think of a hierarchy with common law, and then statues, and then the Constitution at the very top. Laws that are inconsistent with the Constitution are of no force and effect. We'll get into the idea of courts reviewing the constitutionality of legislation in the next lecture. Today, though, I want to focus while going through this chapter five on the six principles underpinning public law, which are set out in this chapter. That is the rule of law, constitutional supremacy, parliamentary supremacy, federalism, the separation of powers and judicial independence. These are key concepts that are going to come up again and again as we go through the balance of the course material. If you have a good understanding of these concepts, it will be much easier to understand how subsequent lessons relate to each other and to understand the rationale 
behind a great many of the important decisions in Canadian public law. So the first phrase, the first key principle that we are going to think about is rule of law. And few phrases get bandied about more often than the rule of law. It can mean many things to many different people. In a case called Singh, called Singh, Singh in Canada, a federal court judge noted that advocates tend to read into the principle of the rule of law anything which supports their particular view of what the law should be. And that certainly rings true to my experience. I've found a number of cases where myself and the other side are both claiming to be the advocates of the rule of law. It's a powerful side to be on. You want to be on the side of the rule of law. It reminds me of a time when I was um, an articling student and I was sitting in criminal court down at 222 Main Street in Vancouver and there was a fella come up for um, something within his process. He was representing himself and he went by the name of Bud the Oracle. And Bud the Oracle had been arrested after posting some YouTube videos with, as far as I understand it, just uh, quite a bit of, um, of drug, I think quite a bit of marijuana sort of laid out saying, here's all the drugs I have. This was before the uh, changes to Canadian drug policy. And so he got arrested and he went down to the court and the, um, the judge was having an interaction with him and Bud the Oracle mentioned, oh, this, this violates the rule of law. And the judge said, well, Mr. Oracle, what what does the rule of law mean? And I am fairly certain that it was 15 minutes of straight talking that Bud the Oracle went through. And at the end, the judge said, well, I don't know what I expected asking that question. And, you know, the reality is that um, if you ask quite a few lawyers what rule of law means, you might get 15 minutes of talking. But a useful articulation of the concept of the rule of law is set out at page 134 of your book from the uh, Re-Manitoba Language Rights reference, where the Supreme Court of Canada said, the rule of law, a fundamental principle of our constitution, must mean at least two things. First, that the law is supreme over officials of the government as well as private individuals, and thereby preclusive of the influence of arbitrary power. Second, the rule of law requires the creation and maintenance of an actual order of positive laws, which preserves and embodies the more general principle of normative order. Law and order are indispensable elements of civilized life. Now, the second of those two ideas that the rule of law requires the creation and maintenance of an actual order of positive laws doesn't have very much practical impact in Canadian law at this point. Canada certainly doesn't suffer from a paucity of legislation and regulations. There are very few aspects of life that are not subject to some municipal, provincial, or federal, or common law. However, sometimes you'll see the concern around leaving a legislative vacuum, that is an area without regulation, be used as a justification for a more restrained judicial review of the constitutionality of legislation. This is something we'll come back to when we look at the doctrine of interjurisdictional immunity in a few classes' time. So that second um, articulation of the rule of law 
less important. The first articulation, the idea that the law is supreme over officials of the government as well as private individuals and thereby preclusive of the influence of arbitrary power is a key concept that we will come back to. It underpins much of administrative law and it fundamentally says that somebody does not have power simply because they hold an office within the Canadian government. They hold, they have power because it was specifically given to them through legislation or through another concept we'll come to later, a prerogative power. That absent legislation or a prerogative power, individuals of the state have no more power than you or me. There are some exceptions to this. There are some common law powers that come into play in policing, but generally speaking, the proposition that people who are purporting to act upon the state's authority must point to some source of that authority and that they are equally bound by legislation and other forms of law as anybody else is the core and important feature of the rule of law that will animate much of our discussion in this course. People have tried to expand the concept of rule of law, though, to apply it in different circumstances. For those of you who may have taken administrative law already, you may have heard of the debate around whether the concept of deference to the interpretation of laws given by administrative decision makers violates the principle of the rule of law. There are people on both sides of that dispute, and I will talk about that further when we touch on administrative law in a few classes. However, what I want to talk about today is the efforts to, to use the concept of the rule of law to argue that a court ought to recognize a substantive limit on legislation. So the first case that I want to talk about in the book on that question of substantive limits on legislation arising from the rule of law is the British Columbian Imperial Tobacco case at page 136. This is an interesting case about retroactive legislation that was aimed at recovering health costs related to tobacco use. So the legislation said, okay, we're going to go back in time and go after the tobacco companies to get some of that money that we're now spending on tobacco-related health issues in the province. How the legislation worked was it created certain evidentiary presumptions in favor of the government, and it also operated retrospectively. So we talked a bit about the common law operating in a way retrospectively in the last part of this uh, lecture, in the sense that the common law will operate um, to look back at conduct that's already happened, but ordinarily statutes are prospective in the sense that you pass a law and you say, okay, now this is unlawful and so you can't do this anymore. Whereas in this case, the health recovery legislation aimed to apply retrospectively so as to change the legal effect of things that had already happened. In essence, what was done wasn't arguably a basis to allow for the government to recover until this legislation was passed, thereby changing 
the legal effect of something that had already happened. So the companies get together and say, well, this legislation violates the rule of law. They said, we're going to claim the rule of law to mean that legislation must be prospective. It must be general. It must not confer special privileges on the government except where necessary for effective governance and must ensure a fair civil trial. So they said these four principles stem from the rule of law and these four principles must be given force so as to make this legislation not applied. The statute violates the rule of law. Supreme Court of Canada said no. The Supreme Court of Canada said the rule of law is not a tool by which to avoid legislative initiatives of which one is not in favor. And the court explained that these principles the manufacturers were proposing stem from the rule of law would, in essence, be broader articulations of rights already contained in the charter. So the court says we can't expand on the constitutional rights that are explicitly set out in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms by referring to the somewhat vague concept of the rule of law to argue that legislation ought not to apply. And it is underscoring the way that the concept of the rule of law can mean many things to many people that in this case, the manufacturers were trying to avoid the application of validly passed legislation because the sort of patron saint of many people who are very into the rule of law is a British theorist named Dicey, whose theory was effectively that laws are to be obeyed. That is the rule of law. There is not a right to not obey an unjust law. So his conception of the rule of law was you obey the unjust laws. The manufacturer's conception of the rule of law is that the rule of law can be used as a justification to constitutionally avoid an unjust law. Very much a concept that is open to be grasped onto by different litigants to advance different propositions. But the Supreme Court, the takeaway to remember from this case is the Supreme Court said to these manufacturers, no, you cannot avoid the application of this law by reference to the concept of the rule of law. These principles that you articulate do not create a constitutional basis to avoid this legislation. Now, this decision, you might be forgiven for reading at the time as saying the Supreme Court had shut the door on an argument that the rule of law could be used as a concept to constitutionally avoid the application of a law passed by Parliament. However, the Supreme Court of Canada in the next case in the book, Trial Lawyers Association and British Columbia, in fact, did return to the rule of law concept and this time to consider a challenge to hearing fees. And that these are fees that had to be paid to access the courts. And so an argument was put forward that the rule of law was violated because it made the hearing fees too high. 
and this made access unavailable. And so this ties back into what we were talking about in the previous component of today's podcast about how figuring out the ratio descendi of a case is difficult and is open to different interpretations. So no doubt the British Columbia government in the trial lawyer's case was pointing to imperial tobacco and saying, oh, you can't rely on the rule of law as a basis to avoid this legislation. Whereas the trial lawyers association was saying, no, that was different. This is a, a distinguishable case the ratio of imperial tobacco doesn't go so far as to preclude me making my rule of law argument in this case. And the majority, in fact, of the Supreme Court of Canada found that the Trial Lawyers Association had a point that the rule of law did in fact require courts to enforce and be available to adjudicate the law. And so a fee which precluded access to some people to those courts could pose a constitutional problem. The court set out at paragraphs 37 and 38 the key passages in that case. The court said, measures that prevent people from coming to the courts to have those issues resolved are at odds with basic judicial function. They said that hearing fees that deny people access to the courts infringe on the core jurisdiction of the superior courts. And they go on to say, the right of Canadians to access the superior courts flows by necessary implication from the express terms of section 96 of the constitution. They go on in, in paragraph 38 now on page 145, halfway through. This court affirmed that access to the courts is essential to the rule of law, quoting from a BCGEU case, where the Supreme Court said there cannot be a rule of law without access. So notwithstanding imperial tobacco, what you get in the trial lawyer's case is an articulation of a concept that the rule of law can be relied upon as a potential substantive limit on legislation. Here, a limit on legislation that would preclude access to the courts because access to the courts is integral to there being a rule of law. And certainly rule of law arguments are not new as of the Constitution Act 1982, but th the rule of law is expressly referenced within that constitutional document. In the preamble to the Constitution, it states, Whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. So there's a, a textual basis for finding the rule of law to found a constitutional review. Now, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. We're going to talk about judicial review on constitutional grounds in great detail for much of this course. And I don't want to get sidetracked into the finer questions of where um, it's appropriate to strike down legislation on the basis of constitutional grounds. But what I, I want you to take away from this discussion of the rule of law is this idea that it's a phrase that is, is seized upon by different people for different purposes. And sometimes it is a phrase that is used to 
perhaps claim a right where none otherwise exists to expand upon the charter rights because the charter rights don't get you quite far enough. Other times it is articulated in the concept of basic access to the courts, as in the trial lawyer's case. In that situation, the litigants have been successful in holding that this idea has real force within Canadian law. The final case on the rule of law that's in the text is a fascinating case that we're going to come back to a number of times. Ron Corelli and Duplessis. This is an older case, 1959, with um, some fairly memorable facts. Frank Ron Corelli was a Jehovah's Witness and a restaurant owner in Montreal. At the time in Montreal, Jehovah's Witnesses were frequently arrested for distributing magazines without permits under a city bylaw. It has to remember at the time, Montreal was a, and Quebec generally, was a very Catholic uh, part of the country. And Jehovah's Witnesses actually faced significant um, oppression and discrimination. So Mr. Ron Corelli, a successful owner um, of restaurants, provided bail security for hundreds of Jehovah's Witnesses who had been arrested. And so the chief prosecutor in Quebec was frustrated with Mr. Ron Corelli, and he contacted the head of the Quebec Liquor Commission and the premier of the province, that's Mr. Duplessis, and Duplessis directed that Ron Corelli's liquor license be cancelled. And the Alcohol Liquor Act, the relevant legislation, provided a general power to do so. It said that the Liquor Commission may cancel any permit at its discretion. So um, Duplessis said, yes, there, I have this discretion. Um, don't like this fella, uh, Mr. Ron Corelli, so we're going to cancel his liquor license, and that'll show him for helping out those Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, without a license, without a liquor license, Mr. Ron Corelli had to sell his business. So he sued. He brought an action for damages against Mr. Duplessis, seeking $90,000, quite, quite a sum in 1959. So did the Liquor Commission have the discretion to cancel the license because they disagreed with his support for the arrested Jehovah's Witnesses? And the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, in public regulation of this sort, there is no such thing as an absolute and untrammeled discretion. Now, that's the key takeaway. There is no such thing as an absolute and untrammeled discretion. That is, that action can be taken on any ground for any reason that can be suggested to the mind of the administrator. No legislative act can, with that express language, be taken to contemplate an unlimited arbitrary power exercisable for any purpose, however capricious or irrelevant, regardless of the nature or purpose of the statute. The court goes on, an administration according to law is to be superseded by action dictated by and according to the arbitrary likes, dislikes, and irrelevant purposes of public officers acting beyond their duty would signalize the beginning of disintegration of the rule of law as a fundamental postulate of our constitutional structure. So that's a mouthful, but what I take that to be is that the rule of law principle requires, the court said, that statutory exercises of discretion must be carried out in accordance with the purpose of the statute. You can't say that just because a statute gives you a discretion to do something, a discretion, for example, to 
cancel a liquor license, that you can do that for any reason at all, for a mean or a capricious or an irrelevant reason. You have to be constrained by the grant of authority vis-a-vis -vis the legislative purpose. So it lets us see, again, the rule of law as being taken out of an abstract realm of legal theory and given real application within a Supreme Court of Canada case. We're going to come back to Ron Corelli and Duplessis quite a bit and the concept of rule of law quite a bit as we go through more of this course. I want to move on to the next two of these six key principles, constitutional supremacy and parliamentary supremacy. And the astute listener will notice that supremacy tends to suggest that there is one thing that is supreme and how can they both be supreme? Well, it's a fair question. Um, the story of Canadian legal theory generally started with one of parliamentary supremacy. Parliamentary supremacy is the idea that there is no law that is beyond the competence of parliament. That is, parliament has the ability to pass any law about any subject that it may seem fit. Now, within a federal state where the legislative authority is split between the federal parliament and the provincial legislatures, there's a slight nuance there, but the idea is that the sum total of the provincial legislatures and the parliament can pass any law that they deem fit. There is no law that you could say, well, nobody can pass this. This is outside of the jurisdiction of parliament. This is outside the jurisdiction of the legislatures. It's just something that nobody could enact. That's the nub of parliamentary supremacy. It was articulated again by the um, theorist Dicey as saying that the principle of parliamentary supremacy means that parliament has the right to make or unmake any law whatever, and further that no person or body is recognized as having a right to override or set aside the legislation of parliament. So here you see the idea that the parliament's power is absolute in the sense that it can write or unmake any law it chooses and there's nobody who is higher than parliament. That's the fundamental idea of parliamentary supremacy. Constitutional supremacy, on the other hand, is the idea that the constitution is the supreme law of the land, and that if parliament passes a law which is inconsistent with the constitution, then that law can be of no force and effect. And we are going to look in the course of this course, quite a bit at the interplay between these two ideas, because for a very long time, it was clear in Canada that parliamentary supremacy was the dominant idea. While there was judicial review on constitutional grounds, that was a sorting as between the federal and provincial legislatures. It was a question of which one had the power to enact a particular law. But if one of them didn't, then necessarily the other did. That's the parliamentary supremacy idea. There's nothing that was beyond 
the sum total power of the federal and provincial legislatures. This was the dominant theory, the frankly correct theory of Canadian public law until 1982 when the Charter and Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was enacted and the Constitution Act 1982 explicitly enshrined in the Constitution that judges will have the power to declare laws of no force and effect if they are inconsistent with the Constitution. Now, the Canadian theory that applies most specifically to public law is one of constitutional supremacy. The Supreme Court explained in a case we're going to revisit in this course, the reference read the secession of Quebec, that with the adoption of the charter, the Canadian system of government was transformed to a significant extent from a system of parliamentary supremacy to one of constitutional supremacy. So this means a hierarchy of laws. You have, again, the, the common law, then you have statutory law above that, which overrides inconsistent common law. But then you have the constitution on top, stating that any law that is inconsistent with this constitution is of no force and effect. And that limits parliament's power. Parliament can no longer pass any law whatsoever that it may see fit. Rather, it can only pass laws that are consistent with the Constitution, and the Constitution, of course, will be interpreted by the courts. So if we think of Canada as having a legislative, an executive, and a judicial branch, uh, concepts we'll be exploring much more deeply in the next lecture, if we think of it as having those three branches, we can think of the balance of power significantly shifting away from the legislature and towards the judiciary with the Constitution Act of 1982 and the enshrinement of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's not to say, though, that the concept of parliamentary supremacy has no ongoing relevance. In our book, we have the 2002 decision of Babcock in Canada. And this is a case about Section 39 of the Canada Evidence Act. It says that if the clerk of the Privy Council issues a certificate stating that information, usually in a document, is a cabinet confidence, then a court must refuse to order that information be disclosed in litigation without even examining or hearing it. So the statute says that there is this non-judicial actor, the clerk of the Privy Council, to use the legislative, executive, and judicial classifications. The clerk of the Privy Council is a part of the executive. And it's not an office. This is an individual. There's a person who has the role of the clerk of the Privy Council. And that person is empowered under Section 39 of the Canada Evidence Act to declare materials to be a cabinet confidence. And if he or she does that, then the court doesn't even look at the materials. They must simply accept that to be the case. As a quick aside, and we're going to get more into what cabinet is and the importance of 
cabinet confidence, but just to let you know for the context of this case, cabinet confidence refers to the idea that the materials that are before the cabinet, that is, the prime minister and the ministers who constitute the Queen's Privy Council for Canada, the highest level of decision makers within the executive, the materials of that group are strictly held in confidence and cannot be disclosed to anyone. The idea here being that cabinet must be able to deliberate in secrecy and the various ministers must be able to disagree with each other and disagree with the prime minister. But then when a decision is made to be able to come out with a unified voice and say this is a decision of the government and we all stand behind it. So in order to protect the ability of the government to do that, these deliberations of cabinet are kept in extreme confidence. I can tell you, working at the Department of Justice of Canada, we'd run into cabinet confidence issues on some cases, and these are treated with the highest level of seriousness by the Department of Justice. There's not all that many mistakes that you might make in your day-to-day -day that could really jeopardize your job, but accidentally disclosing a cabinet confidence is the kind of thing that would cause real consternation and, and potential repercussions to a Department of Justice employee. It's taken very seriously. So all that to say, in this Babcock case, ironically, it was Department of Justice lawyers in Vancouver who were challenging the invocation of cabinet confidence by the federal government within a dispute about the rate of pay for those lawyers. So the DOJ lawyers objected and they argued that Section 9 violated, among other things, the rule of law to bring another one of our major principles into this discussion. So the Supreme Court considered, is Section 39 unconstitutional? And in part, they said no. Well, they said no, but in part, the reason they said no was that they determined the rule of law must be balanced against the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, parliamentary supremacy. You may hear parliamentary sovereignty and you may hear parliamentary supremacy. They refer to the same concept. And the idea is parliament can pass draconian, silly, stupid, mean laws if it chooses. It is constrained only by the constitution and absent a constitutional reason to not give effect to this provision, section 39, absent a constitutional reason, parliament must be allowed to legislate how it chooses. There can be seen then to be a tension between parliamentary supremacy and constitutional supremacy in a way they act as a check upon each other. Parliament can legislate in any way it sees fit. The courts can review that to make sure that it stays within the Constitution. As long as it stays within the Constitution, though, it is not the court's job to opine on the wisdom of the law. It's the court's job to apply the law so long as it's properly interpreted.
So this concept is not something we're going to leave behind, neither concept of parliamentary supremacy or constitutional supremacy. Rather, we're going to be able to see the push and pull of these two ideas as we go through the balance of the course. They are animating ideas that are going to have specific application in a number of the cases that we're going to look at. The next overriding principle that I want to discuss is federalism. So as I've alluded to earlier in this lecture, federalism is the idea that there's a balance between the federal and provincial parliaments. In 1860, the colonies of Canada, Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and PEI, negotiated an agreement to form a union and asked the UK parliament to pass a law to the effect. And crucial to the agreement was Unlike the case in the United Kingdom, the union would be federal, with power distributed between provinces and the central government. And the result is the British North America Act, the Constitution Act of 1867, which I've discussed a bit earlier. The division of powers between the two levels of government, the federal and provincial governments, is set out in sections 91 and 92 of that Constitution Act of 1867. We are going to spend quite a bit of time going through sections 91 and 92 and explaining how they play off of each other. But basically how it works is section 91 lists the various powers of the federal parliament. These are 29 subject matters, things like regulation of trade and commerce, militia, military and naval service and defense, savings banks, criminal law, Indians and lands reserved for the Indians. Section 92 sets out the exclusive powers of the provincial legislatures, and these include 16 subject matters, including most notably property and civil rights and all matters of a merely local or private nature in the province. So we have this federal distribution of powers. And in the Quebec secession reference, again, a case we're going to come back to, the Supreme Court of Canada held that the principle of federalism recognizes the diversity of the component parts of the confederation and the autonomy of provincial governments to develop their societies within their respective spheres of jurisdiction. The court continued, the principle of federalism facilitates the pursuit of collective goals by cultural and linguistic minorities, which form the majority within a particular province. That province, of course, is Quebec. And the court said the social and demographic reality of Quebec explains the existence of the province of Quebec as a political unit and indeed was one of the essential reasons for establishing a federal structure for the Canadian Union in 1867. So what this is getting at is when Canada formed a union, there was a balance, there was an agreement that it would be done in a way that would preserve Quebec's status and ability to operate as a unique society. So the distribution of powers as between the federal and provincial governments must be interpreted with this idea of federalism in mind. And the courts can't undo the bargain. They can't take away this balance which allowed Quebec to enter the Confederation on 
um, on agreement, on, on its own consent. So federalism is the idea that there is this balance as between the federal and provincial governments and that we ought not to interpret the Constitution so as to allow either side to significantly change that balance, to grow to a sphere of competency that would swallow the powers of the other branch. Federalism is going to be the major focus of a significant portion of this class when we go through those division of powers. So with that overarching introduction, I'll move on to principle five, which is the separation of powers. Now that's the idea that we're going to have the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government, and we're going to get into the roles of each of those much more in the next lecture. Unlike the United States, though, the separation between the two in theory is not nearly as strict. In Canada, the executive is a member of the legislature. That is, the prime minister is also a member of parliament. The various ministers of government are also members of parliament or of the Senate and almost always the House of Commons. In the United States, the president, of course, doesn't sit in Congress, doesn't sit in the House of Representatives. And if you want to join the government, if you want to become attorney general, you have to give up your Senate seat. If you follow U.S. politics, um, Jeff Sessions joined the Trump administration as attorney general. And in so doing, he gave up his Alabama Senate seat, which um, flipped parties, surprisingly, to Doug Jones, you know, winning that election in a, in a big surprise. So in the United States, this is the reason for that, the reason that Jeff Sessions had to give up his Senate seat was the separation of powers. He was moving from the legislative branch that makes the laws into the executive branch that carries out the laws. In Canada, we have the three branches and we have a separation of powers somewhat, but it is not strict and it is uh, rendered quite blurry by the fact that the same people sit in both the legislative branch and sit atop of the executive branch. However, despite the separation of powers being nowhere near as strict as it is in the United States, that is not to say that it doesn't have real effect in Canadian law. The place where the separation of powers as between the federal, or the judicial, the executive and the legislative branch is most closely guarded is as between the judicial branch and the other two branches. And judges jealously guard their jurisdiction as against what is seen as untowards intrusions by either the executive or the legislative branch. There was a uh, significant controversy caused by Prime Minister Stephen Harper making public comments suggesting that Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin had inappropriately attempted to influence his uh, appointment of a judge to the Supreme Court of Canada. That's uh, Mark Nadon, Justice Mark Nadon, who was appointed, but his eligibility was ultimately found to be not established. Um, we'll talk about the Nadon case later, and he was found to be ineligible to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada. There's an entire book that just came out about this 
controversy as between uh, Prime Minister Harper, Chief Justice McLaughlin, and ultimately the court deciding that Justice Nadon was ineligible to sit with them on the court. And ultimately, in many ways, that was a division of powers argument. Uh, Stephen Harper was alleging that the Prime Minister Harper was alleging that the judiciary was unduly interfering in his sphere of, of competency, the appointment of judges, and um, the criticisms that seemed to be implicit in his uh, making that public, uh, his concerns public, was seen as the executive uh, unduly criticizing the judiciary. And so it was fundamentally a dispute in many ways over the division, the separation of powers as between the judicial, executive, and legislative branches. As I said, we'll come back to that case later. Where you see the concept of a separation of powers arise most often in the jurisprudence is as a, a normative argument in litigation, specifically asking the courts to not intrude into the legislative sphere. The case you have is Cotter and Canada. It's a 2010 decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. So in 2008, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Mr. Omar Qadar's detention and questioning at Guantanamo Bay violated international human rights law. So Mr. Qadar was a Canadian citizen who was arrested for uh, alleged terrorism offenses committed in Afghanistan when he was 15 years old. And he was sent to Guantanamo Bay. He was in United States custody. And the question of, of what to do with Mr. Qadar and what impact his um, status as a Canadian citizen and whether his Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, rights were impacted by his detention at Guantanamo Bay was a major international story and a major international issue for a number of years. And there were repeated requests by Mr. Qadar that the Canadian government seek his repatriation from the U.S., saying, you know, Mr. Prime Minister, ask the U.S. to send Mr. Qadar back to Canada so that he can serve any imprisonment that is necessary in on Canadian soil, but that he ought not to be in this um, notorious institution of Guantanamo Bay. After these repeated requests, the government still said no, it would not seek his repatriation. So Mr. Qadar then applied to the federal court for judicial review of that decision, administrative law, we'll get to that later, alleging that it violated his rights under Section 7 of the Charter. Again, a topic we'll talk in greater depth about later. So the court had to consider, did the prime minister's refusal violate Mr. Qadar's constitutional rights? And the Supreme Court said, yes, Canada actively participated in a process contrary to its international human rights obligations and contributed to Mr. Qadar's ongoing detention so as to deprive him of his right to liberty and security of the person. So yes, his constitutional rights were violated by this decision to not intervene, to not seek his repatriation from the United States. Well, what to do about it? What does the court order in that circumstance? What does the court, the court can't order the United States government to give him back? And that wasn't the issue before it. The issue was whether the refusal to ask violated Mr. Kadar's constitutional rights. And so 
the question was, ought the court to step in and direct the executive in how it fulfills its international relations? A quintessentially executive question of, of um, a prerogative nature, which we will talk more about that again later. So the court said, no, we are not going to direct, we're not going to order that the executive seek Mr. Kadar's repatriation from the United States. The conduct of foreign affairs generally lies within the executive branch. The proper remedy then instead was to grant Mr. Kadar a declaration that his charter rights had been infringed while leaving the government with the discretion in deciding how best to respond. So this is the judiciary saying our powers are not limitless even in the face of a breach of the constitution. There are limits to how far we are going to go in making orders when we are stepping into an area that is in quintessence executive. We are going to make a declaration that what happened is unconstitutional, but we are going to leave it up to the executive to determine what to do with that declaration. As a bit of a postscript, in 2012, Mr. Kadar was returned to Canada to serve the rest of his sentence. In 2015, he was released on bail. In 2016, he was engaged to a human rights activist. And in March of 2019, an Alberta judge ruled that his sentence had expired and that Mr. Kadar was a free man. So that is the idea of the separation of powers, that the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary have their specific roles within the structure, their specific powers, and that there are going to be limits on how far the courts, the legislature, and the executive are willing to go when they are going to be intruding, perhaps, on the roles of the other branches. Okay, and the final large principle that I want to discuss is judicial independence. This is the idea that judges, in order to accomplish their core activities, have to be completely free from influence from other branches of government, free to decide cases on their own merits. This is a concept that we are going to get into in much greater detail later on when we talk about the courts in the Canadian system. The trade-off, as it were, for the independence that the judiciary demands from the executive and the legislature, rightly demands to exercise its core function, is that the members of the judiciary are expected to refrain from criticism or engagement in matters of the legislature or the executive. The Supreme Court has said that members of the judiciary should exercise reserve in speaking out publicly on issues of general public policy, that are or have the potential to come before the courts that are the subject of political debate and which do not relate to the proper administration of justice. So while it is appropriate for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to say our courts are understaffed, we need more judges appointed, we need to have enhanced facilities, that, that relates to their constitutional role of the judiciary, that relates to the judicial role. It's improper to step outside and begin opining on matters of policy, matters of governance, matters that are outside of the judiciary's immediate interests in the proper functioning of the courts. That's demanded by 
the separation of powers. So that is the a very brief introduction to the idea of judicial independence. Again, this is an idea that we do come back to in the course when we talk about the courts themselves, which will be happening quite shortly. So then to recap on this last component of the first day's lecture, we saw that there are these six principles which underpin public law. We have the principle of the rule of law, which is claimed by many different people in many different ways, but fundamentally has at its core the idea that no one is above the law. The members of the office holders, or the police officers, anybody who, who exercises a, a government-given power only has such power as is, as is given by statute or by prerogative power and cannot just exercise that discretion in a capricious and arbitrary manner. And it's a concept that has been given a substantive role in at least ensuring the availability of courts to administer justice. We then saw the concepts of constitutional and parliamentary supremacy, which are in tension. The question of whether the parliament can and should be able to pass any law that it seems fit or whether the constitution constrains what parliament may pass. We saw that Canada was rightly characterized as a parliamentary supremacy for most of its history, but since the advent of the charter has moved to um, been labeled a constitutionally supreme organization. We'll see that there are Still other, there's more to be told on that story. We're going to learn about section one of the charter and we're going to learn about section 33 of the Constitution Act 1982, both of which put a restraint on constitutional supremacy. So the, the question of which is the dominant theory is still very much up for debate. And indeed, that's been an essay question on the last two exams, which of the theories better explains the Canadian system an idea that we are certainly going to revisit throughout the scope of this course. We talked about federalism. It's a balance. It's a bargain as between the um, colonies who came together to join confederation and particularly Quebec with its unique linguistic minority, a minority within the broader population of Canada, but a majority within Quebec of French-speaking individuals and how the principle of federalism in effect says we can't pull the rug out from under Quebec. They came into confederation on the basis of a deal, a balance of powers, and that balance of powers should be maintained. We saw the principle of the separation of powers, which is not as strict as it is in the United States, but still asks that the judiciary, the executive, and the legislature stay within their proper spheres, an idea we're going to see um, again and again in this course as well. And finally, we just mentioned the principle of judicial independence. So that's the subject matter for the first course. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to getting to meet everybody in our Zoom meetings um, coming up. And the readings for the next class are fairly extensive. I hope that people will be able to take the time to get through them because they do lay the foundation for much of the rest of the course. Thank you again.